All right, Quack 12 fans, and specifically Duck fans. That is right, because we're no longer doing the rivalry roster reviews. No, 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 no. Uh, The bottom 11, as they are called in the Pac-12, they've already been covered by uh, our special guest, Hithliday, uh, resident film reviewer and managing editor of Addicted to Quack. They've already been covered by Hithliday on this very podcast in our 11-week series, which you can find on this uh, uh on this podcast no 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 we've covered them now it's time for the big boy it's time for the the class of the conference uh the the one that the other 11 schools truly hate talking about because they know we're the talented one we're the one bringing all the good stuff that's right this is a homer podcast we're talking about the oregon ducks and they're a roster of talented, uh, wonderful men of Oregon here. Uh, so, of course, we had to bring on, once again, Hithliday of Addicted to Quack. Hithliday, you, fi- you finally excited to talk about ducks, about, about a well-managed roster? It is a well-managed roster. Uh, and considering that they went through a coaching change, it's sort of um, astonishing that that happened. Uh, the... Uh, you know, there's there are a couple spots where it's thinner than others. But, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, as you said, we've been through 11 of these like I, it's it's simply much harder to poke holes, uh, you know, in this roster than anybody else in the Pac-12. And you know, part of that is because it simply is the most talented roster in the Pac-12 and or at least, you know, according to two for seven, you know, composite ratings, you know, Oregon uh, slightly extended its, uh, you know, g- if you look at net effects right like uh Mm. dudes out dudes in uh oregon was in first place in 2021 there they uh, slightly improved their average um uh second place was usc they slightly fell third place was washington they had a huge fall stanford had a uh, was fourth place was a tiny fall um you got to get down to like fifth and sixth place you know with ucla in utah before you find another team that you know grew their talent um so like yes it's a it's a very talented team and it's a well-balanced roster um and uh you know they took some judicious transfers to plug holes that were sort of inevitable when the last staff left and you know some dudes hit the portal um but you know when i you know I, I have spreadsheets for, I have a database for every team in the pack 12. I uh, convert them into spreadsheets so that, you know, we can talk about them. I use a bunch of visual cues and codes and so forth. And like at pulling up Oregon's sheet just looks different from most other teams in the pack 12 um, in terms of like, you know, where the talent is, where the, you know, where they are, what year in school they are, how much experience that they have. It's like very neat and orderly and, and, uh, well well balanced you know it looks closer to like what you know uh, ohio state and georgia you know two teams that i mm. just had i've been having to study recently and you know made a data for them generated the same spreadsheet and like oregon's sheet looks more like georgia and ohio state's sheet than they it looks like a pac-12 team even usc which is like up there in talent looks way more like a pac-12 team in, in the sense that's like you know because that team is made of like tons of transfers right like uh mm. right like like 40 yeah. percent of their two deep are probably going to be transfers right like um yeah oregon is just sort of at, at this point you know between uh 
um, talent and roster balance is in a category on it in its own uh, in the Pac-12. And I really feel like I would be saying that even if I weren't an Oregon fan. Like, <laughs> I just feel like these are sort of objective facts. Um, and I, I really would challenge anybody to, to you know, come up with any other objective way of looking at it that comes to a different conclusion. I don't think there is one. Uh, that being said, uh, for any listeners ready to just jump on Twitter and yell at Hithloday, at Hithloday, the number one, H-Y-T-H-L-O-D-A-Y, the number one, uh, the talent doesn't necessarily equal win sometimes, uh, as we all know. Um, that is true. As I just <laughs> finished saying, the number two, number three, and number four teams last year um, were three and nine, four and eight, four and eight, you know, uh, <laughs> uh what is what's that 11 and 17 something or 11 and 27 like it's just uh you know it's just terrible uh 11 23 thanks uh um you know you're right uh, you know talent does not guarantee uh success um and so this, this is a bit of a basic question but i mean let's look at these three top guys we're bringing in dan lanning new head coach obviously the the dc of uh last year's national champion um, Kenny Dillingham, close friend Dan Lanning, uh, has worked with uh, like Gus Malzahn and Auburn, Mike Norvell, uh, and then Tosh Lupoy, who's uh, a lot of Pac 12 fans got a lot of things to say about him. Hmm. Um, what do you think of these three hires? Well, uh, there are question marks surrounding all of them, but uh, so far, you know, I'm pretty happy with the results. You know, most of what we've seen of what they've been doing has been recruiting and reaching out within their networks to find other coaches. And I like the coaching staff that's been assembled, and I definitely like the recruiting, including the sort of self-recruiting, like getting guys who hopped in the portal to come back. Uh, you know, they got a, a number of important guys to, to come back, um, which is a pretty good sign. Uh, Dan Lanning's uh, defense uh, was uh, incredible at Georgia. Um, I will be um, doing uh, some further film study and, and, and film review articles of that um, uh, as the summer goes on. Uh, Tosh Lupoy was the first coach that I profiled um, in my coach mm. uh, review series that I wrote back in the winter. Um, uh, you know, he was the DC at Alabama in 2018. Um, and, you know, it's the same. You can see why he got hired. And it's not just because he can recruit. It's because that's the defensive system. Like it was sort of developed at Alabama with Nick Saban and Kirby Smart, um, you know, eight, nine years ago. And uh, and sort of Smart brought it with him to Georgia. Uh uh, to uh, Tosh Lapoy was coaching within it uh, where it remained at Alabama. And then Dan Lanning picked it up from uh, Kirby Smart at Georgia. So it's like, yeah, you know, they're sort of cousins uh, in the same family. Um, but it's, you know, basically the same structures. It's an evolution of the tight front um, that, you know, Dave Aranda and Todd Orlando sort of made mm -hmm. famous. Um, the the mint, they call it the mint front. It is more or less the same. There's some changes about how the um, about how the, the nickel and the outside linebacker line up in terms of like boundary field versus, you know, passing strength. Um, it's sort of a 
pretty technical distinction. The, the, the point of that defensive system is to devote as many resources as you can to immediately stopping the pass, hmm. but not just get immediately run over by the by the run game right so it's sort of like it takes the lesson of uh, of uh, pete kwikowski's defense at uh, yes. washington and like boise and montana state before it where it's like the the lesson is that the pass can hurt you more than the run and that if you in devoting like maximum resources to you know to the back end to stopping the pass you know will w is is ultimately just a, a more you know, on balance, a better use of your resources. But as anybody knows who played Washington over the years, especially Oregon fans, like <laughs> their allocation of resources to the stopping the pass was like absolute. Like they basically weren't even bothering to stop the run and mm -hmm. teams that were disciplined enough to run at them, which is not most teams. It's why they usually had a good record. But when they would play Oregon, when they would play Stanford, when they Stanford. would play <laughs> the, the big boy teams like Oregon State, State even really had quite or when they would go to play big bowl games and would play Alabama and Ohio mm -hmm. State and Penn State you know teams that had the discipline and the ability to just be like oh you're not going to defend the run well I'm just going to run the ball at you you know 40 times this game and uh, you know you're not going to be able to stop it and I'm not going to lose discipline and start throwing into the teeth of your defense so the the mint front is sort of like okay we'll take that philosophical lesson and we'll also look at what you know happened to Washington and avoid that and you know this is difficult to do without a whiteboard but essentially it's devote as much resources as you can to stopping the pass while also not getting slaughtered by the run mm. um uh and uh, obviously Alabama and Georgia have been very successful with it. Now, I would imagine having a very dominant defensive line helps that out. Uh, we'll yeah, get definitely. into that later because that's that's the exciting part, y'all. <laughs> and then you asked about Kenny Dillingham. I, I Frankly, I, I think it's the biggest question mark in terms like schematically and, and, and philosophically, you know, because uh, we don't know what he's going to want to run. Like he's, yeah. you know, he he's been the uh, like he was always running somebody else's system at memphis and at florida state he was running mike norvell's system and in um uh, 2019 at auburn um he was running Gus Malzahn's system. Um, I expect simply because like what else is he, you know, have any experience doing that he's going to run some sort of variation of Mike Norvell's system. So we're going to see like a lot of RPOs, a lot of misdirection, a lot of attacking linebackers, um, uh, you know, a lot of, um, but, but there's some flexibility too. Like I, you know, I saw quite a bit of variety between those three schools, Memphis and then Auburn and then Florida state in terms of like how and when the quarterback was running when they were handing the ball to the running back when they were like oh our big weapon is the tight end or when it's the outside receiver like he seems like a pretty flexible guy seems like you know one of these guys who isn't like wedded to a particular like well this is the only thing i know how to do and so we're gonna do it even if the personnel's not appropriate for it which you know as you know from from these 11 other podcasts that we've done adam like <laughs> that's uh, actually pretty rare in the back 12 yes. um really what they're what they uh, want to run we're going to find out when they open against Georgia you know like mm -hmm. that that's the most certain you know we're going to get uh, and we're, we're all going to find it out together and uh, I mean with you know obviously with so much of the talk with Chris Ball and his offense was uh, whether how accurate or not it was is that you know, like kind of hindering his OC or whatever blah 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 this this relationship between Dillingham and Lanning would make you believe anyway that Dillingham is just kind of like 
off leash almost <laughs> like really you take part of it i mean that's a lot of speculation i mean i i guess you're right it is speculation you know if i, I frankly i've never really bought the theory that mm -hmm. that you know mario cristobal is like rushing up to the booth and knocking the play sheet out of you know joe <laughs> Morehead's hands or whatever like it doesn't really make sense um I, I sort of think oregon was a more run than pass heavy team you know simply because that was you know where the talent was you know the, t the talent mm -hmm. you know that oregon had was with its offensive line its running backs and you know they didn't have a signal caller that they really fully trusted pretty much ever throughout mario cristobal's four years you know i know that justin herbert's been tearing it up in the nfl but sort of like under fairly different circumstances with fairly different wide receivers and justin herbert you know grew up like he wasn't a you know gangly he, he is no longer a gangly true freshman or true sophomore who you know coming off of a collarbone injury in 2017 you know i I never really quite bought that theory, but it, if you are inclined to buy that theory, the fact that, you know, Mario Cristobal is an offensive guy, you know, an offensive line guy, you know, you, I guess you, you could see, you know, that he might want to have his say in how the offense is run. Whereas Dan landing a defensive, you know, guy, it is usually the case that guys who come up from the defensive side have, you know, just sort of let the offensive guys do what they want. You know, that, that if they're asked for input, they usually give bad advice. You, they usually say, this is the offense that gave me the most trouble as a defensive coordinator. So run that, you know, I, I sort of don't think that that's what's going to happen here. It's, you know, I, I think that Dillingham is going to run what he wants to run. Um, and uh, and like I said, it seemed like, you know, given the three different schools of film study that I looked at when I wrote my article about Kenny Dillingham, that he was like he was sort of running different things where he would lean into wherever the strength of the, you know, the offense was. You know, that seems pretty appropriate to me. <laughs> Well, uh, this is an Oregon Duck podcast. I'm guessing a whole bunch of Oregon Duck fans are listening to this. So might as well take our time, stretch it out a little bit, really, you know, uh, live in the moment by going to last season, uh, checking out what we're coming off of here. What some crazy Duck fans would call a disappointing season. That's that's yeah. my attitude towards it. A 10-win season cannot be disappointing. A season where you go to the Alamo Bowl, Make it to the Pac-12 championship game in no way is disappointing. But I understand. I mean, it had disappointing moments. Like oh, I, sure. Like, I mean, just about any college football season is going to. But like, yeah, no, retaining some perspective and like this is a 10-win team. And like, and, and look, I think if you asked a, you know, a, a pessimist about, you know, well, how did Oregon win 10 10 games if they sucked so bad uh, and if you know crystal ball was such a lousy coach and etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you know the reply would be like well they just out talented all these teams on the schedule <laughs> okay number one they out talented ohio state okay interesting <laughs> and and but number two like yeah you're right they did just out talent a lot of teams on their schedule like and guess what oregon is more talented than you know every team that they play except for georgia this year too so great you know? yeah exactly see what happens and like in a lot of regards would you get pretty unlucky uh looking at inside linebacker there um but uh so we started it off against fresno state uh which was a game that had a lot of people by the end of it being like oh my god we're gonna get destroyed by ohio state next week which is mm -hmm. definitely me but um at the same time you know you look back that fresno state team is a pretty damn good team Jay Kaner obviously had a great season. Thank God he got out of Seattle. Uh, Jordan Mims was fun to watch. Uh, it came down to it, and it came down um, 
uh, to our man. Uh, uh, many people really don't like him, Anthony Brown Jr., but yet again, winning us a game in the last minute. It, yeah, I mean, it was sort of a running theme throughout the year, and it, you know, and it started in the first game, which was that like he was you know, he was the primary reason why they were losing in the fourth quarter. And he was the primary reason why they won the game. Like that, you know, he, that simultaneously he had this, um, you know, real, you know, it was real, uh, accuracy problem. Um, and, and at the same time he operated, you know, Joe Moorhead's RPO offense, you know, at a pretty high level with the exception of a couple of games that we'll talk about later. Um, and uh and you know effectively ran the ball when he needed to run the ball you know ditched the ball on the rpo when he was supposed to ditch the ball like um you know yeah it, it definitely became a running theme like <laughs> that that guy was simultaneously the reason that you were in trouble and that you were getting out of trouble like you know frankly i could describe maybe half of pac-12 quarterbacks that way um you know it wasn't any, anything particularly unique you know we're i think oregon fans were just sort of coming off of justin herbert uh you know and mm -hmm. and the last time they replaced you know an iconic you know quarterback you know marcus mariota they got uh a, a, with a transfer uh who was you know vernon adams it was like the Hell late yeah. show you know and so it was like the fact that anthony brown was not you know vernon adams i think set everybody's teeth on edge um but like the dude the the dude executed the rpo offense as he was asked to do he had accuracy problems that we all knew about you know when i wrote my article about him in 2020 i pointed them out um and, and so yeah you know you had games like this you know all the time and you had 10 wins and then uh a game that uh uh well i'll never forget on september 11th 2021 holy cow i i lost money on this game and i was thrilled um and this is why why are duck fans saying anything about about anthony brown i know i watched some of these games i watched the stanford game and such i get why but he delivered the first win over ohio state in Oregon football history, we had lost to them nine straight times, but Oregon without Kayvon Thibodeau, without Justin Flo, some would say the team's like two actually most talented best players, uh, both were injured Fresno State, both missed Ohio State. We go to the horseshoe, and honestly, we outmuscle them uh, 35 to 28. Wouldn't want to play that game again. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, that was sort of the, you know, yeah, you know, it was Ohio State was operating kind of a, it was with the DC they wound up firing and with mm -hmm. a quarterback who was very young and, and who, you know, t took a few games to really like to really lock in, although you could see it in that game. Um uh, what Stroud's talent level was um, like the, the sort of enduring thing to me from watching that game is that like, and from doing all the film study that I did on Ohio State, you know, under Ryan Day, which I, I did two years of, right, because Oregon was scheduled to play him in 2020. So I reviewed their entire 2019 season um, before that game was canceled. Um, is that like in the vast majority of Ohio State's games, like pretty much every game until they get to the playoffs, they just sort of, you know, they're the Oregon of the Big Ten, but like way more so. Yeah like they they simply out talent uh everybody and it's sort of like they don't most of their games they don't even break a sweat and in particular on the lines like their lines are just so much better mm -hmm. than everybody else in the big 10 that like they kind of in a lot of games are are sort of on autopilot and just sort of like 
you know, their defensive line just automatically wrecks your offensive line. And so like, good luck doing anything if that's happening on offense and, you know, their offensive line just sort of like laughs at everybody who's challenging them. Um, you know, so the quarterback tends to get a lot of time to, to make decisions. The running back has big lanes to run through and like, the enduring thing that I have from watching that game is that Ohio state strategy in basically the first half of the game was that they were going to play it like any other big 10 game. And it was like, you know, obviously you can't see the facial expressions on their linemen, but like, if you could from their body language or whatever, like they, it was like, they were surprised that they weren't just automatically bowling over to this PAC 12 team, you know, like that, you know, Oregon was competitive with them, you know, on the lines and that like their normal strategy of just like walk all over the opponent, like physically dominate them in the trenches is what I mean by that. Like it was non-operational. Um, and they had to do other stuff. They had to like, Oh, okay. I guess we got to hit some of these crazy passes to our mm -hmm. crazy wide receivers, you know? And I guess we got to like, you know, I guess we, we got to, our safeties have to actually tackle which like i identified that in my film study preview of ohio yes. state it was like their safeties couldn't tackle and it's like well okay if joe moorhead engineers running back into the into the second level and you know he's going to get a bunch of extra yards because their safeties you know never get to work out you know like <laughs> you know what i mean um yeah so yeah you know i, I thought that you know that that game you know i know we're all as oregon fans we're all required constitutionally to hate mario cristobal now but like for a dude who seriously invested in all four years in both the offensive and defensive line, like that was the payoff game. Exactly. And uh, also want to shout out, I'm going to say it was a game game winning play. Uh, Cam McCormick making that catch, which he ultimately got injured on mm -hmm. to extend the drive. So we weren't punting mm -hmm. deep Incredible. in our own. I mean, that was truly a, a huge moment. Stony Brook was up next. This was really like one of the few games where we got to check out some of the depth. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'll say that 48 to seven. We won that one. Uh, that's good. Yes. Though it was only 17, seven at the half. So, I mean, it was weird times. Uh, yeah. And Anthony Brown sat out the second half. Um, he, uh, it looked like he took a, a hit to the helmet right before That's the half. Right. And, um, and you know, I don't want to speculate about his health, but I think it, it affected his performance in the next two games. Mm. Yeah. And then, uh, so against Arizona, the final score was 41 to 19, as we've said multiple times, this game was much closer <laughs> for quite a while. I mean, going into the fourth, I do believe it was like 24 to 19, so, uh, yeah, it was a game, and that Arizona team is better than their 1-11 record. Said that a million times, too. Jordan McLeod, as you said, there was the, the option to put him in that, I don't know, maybe it'll happen again this season. I mean, if Jordan McLeod didn't get injured basically the like next week you know against ucla that's not mm -hmm. a one and 11 team like if they were run and if jed fish arizona's head coach had the um vision to put jordan mcleod in in the first three games uh th they wouldn't have been oh and three in those first three games you know i thought it was a you know in hindsight very obvious you know a foolish decision not to go with him and then you know really unfortunate that he that, that mcleod got injured if if they had him in 12 games no way is that a one and 11 team um that might have even been a bowl team i agree and by the way um i decide you know how every year i uh, during these, I kind of find some crazy prediction that's going to make me look like a genius. Uh, mm -hmm. Hasn't worked out yet. I got close once. 
Um, but I'm calling it now. I think I was calling Oregon like a couple of years ago. I called Oregon State beating Washington. I think they bar- or maybe Stanford. They barely didn't. But um, I'm calling it now. Arizona will beat USC uh, under Jordan McLeod October 29th, mm, 2022. So just just saying. They gave him a game last year. Yeah, exactly. No, I think they're doing it. I, I'll, I'll even say it will be USC's first loss in the Lincoln mm-hmm. Riley era. Yeah, and then uh, so after that one, uh, which definitely put the scare, even more scare in people, then the loss to Stanford, which, I mean, this is why people weren't feeling so hot about uh, our offense or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was an overtime loss because it's got to be. And Stanford was terrible, and we were looking, you know, at least like a possible – I mean, at that point, we had beaten Ohio State, so we were a top five team, baby. And um, so, of course, Stanford's going to beat us because that's just yeah. that's how it goes. It's how the universe. I mean, goes. it was it was really a stars aligning kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, in, in the first half, Oregon um, was making a bunch of you know self inflicted wounds offensively, like bad RPO reads. Like I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I thought that uh, Anthony Brown's performance in the RPO game this is like his worst performance. Um, and, and, you know, it showed uh, Oregon sort of abandoned the RPO in the second half and just ground them down with their run game, um, which was, you know, basically unstoppable all year long. Um, it was also the game that Joe Moorhead was out. You know, he was uh, right. in the hospital. It, it was, you know, and it was also a game that like you know, should have been over at multiple points and was extended by decisions yes. made by the officiating crew, which, you know, we don't need to get into, but it's like all, all of those factors had to occur, you know, mm-hmm. like any one of them not being the case. And this is a comfortable win for Oregon. You know, uh, it, it's not one that like, it, it, the only way that it, it didn't keep me up at night, the only reason it would is because, like, damn you, football gods. Like, why <laughs> do you, why does the football gods hate the Ducks, you know, so much to, to do, you know, crazy stuff like that? And I'll tell you this. Um, I, I think I said this too when we talked about, when we talked to uh, Rob Wong um, of Right for Cal about Cal, when we got to this Oregon uh, versus Cal game, this is truly the one I like don't have memory of which means to my head that it must have been a painful watch i mean it's a very close game 24 to 17 we scored uh 14 versus their seven in the fourth quarter so it all came down to i believe it was like a 30 yard anthony brown td to win it if i remember correctly something like that maybe not i don't know um but yeah this this is a game i've basically blacked out on i guess uh this in this game in the first half uh um Kayvon Thibodeau was still out because of a really interesting targeting call against Stanford. Right. Again. Huh? I, you know, uh, again, you're sort of like the, you know, what's up with the football gods here? Um, the, uh, and then as soon as he came back, you just completely shut down Cal's offense, you know, as well he might, um, uh, you know, it was, there were, there was, uh, there was two different scores got taken off the board because of really <laughs> unfortunately timed um, turnovers by Oregon. Like, you know, this was a game that like, yeah, I know, you know, only one by seven against a Cal team that wasn't great. Although they went on to, to play fairly well in the second half of their seasons, it sort of like redeemed that being a closer game. But like, if you actually look at the efficiency rates, like Oregon was in control of that game the entire time. It, it showed on everywhere, you know, except for the scoreboard and even the scoreboard, you know, showed a win for the good guys at the end. Absolutely. That was not a game that kept me up. 
And then um, uh, we go down to Pasadena, we go down to the Rose Bowl, take on UCLA. And I, I got to say, like, obviously, Chip Kelly uh, not doing, I don't know. He's got a whole lot of problems, mainly about not giving a shit about recruiting, but um, or in a whole lot of things. But uh, you, he's, he's getting closer and closer to getting our number, unfortunately, I got to say. And maybe if it wasn't for an injury to DTR in this, it kind of feels like maybe you would have done it. It was a 34-31 to 31 win for the Ducks. Um, but it came down to it at the end. And in the, I mean, in the end... You're uh, right. There was a garbage time comeback um, mm-hmm. by, by DTR that was ultimately unsuccessful. I, it was like you know, Oregon was up by like 24 at one point in the game, you know, like Oregon complete, like UCLA did what UCLA does under Chip Kelly, which is they, they got like basically a free touchdown on him running stuff that he had never shown before. Right. Like that's (laughs) Chip Kelly's deal is that he like invents a new playbook, you know, Mm -hmm. and it takes you a little while. So they get like a free score there. Uh, And then Oregon just completely controlled the second and third quarters and built a huge lead. Uh, and, And then like, you know, uh, DTR willed them back, you know, with like, you know, 14 points, you know, on some like crazy, you know, improbable catches, which like, it doesn't make me take notice of Thompson Robinson. I just finished writing my profile of UCLA and I called him their best weapon, um, mm-hmm. for a reason is cause like, cause he does that, you know, like he wills guy his team, you know, to, to these comebacks, you know, all the time, but like, that's what it was, man. Like, don't, don't present it like this was a three-point game throughout. Like it was not. So you're saying was, do call it a comeback. It was, it was, yes, do call it a comeback. You know, okay. Oregon was firmly in control of this game for all the time that mattered. And, uh, you know, garbage time is garbage time. Uh, it was actually Garber's time. Mm. Yes, Ethan Garber's. Okay, um, and then after that, Colorado, we, we did in fact beat them, and we beat them so bad that we got their cornerback out of it. Or Christian Gonzalez, I should say. Um, 52 to 29, we beat them. Uh, that's a pretty consistent win, and it really helps when they're very bad. Um, yes. And then after that, we beat the Huskies. That's always fun. We beat them so bad yeah. that their coach uh, struck player and was fired, and and they and they had to just give up and just <laughs> Um, snap that thing out into the bleachers because that's another one where two two touchdowns came off the board for Oregon for questionable reasons. You know, that that you know was officially a 10 point win, but probably should be more like 24. Absolutely, we're we're close to to tying the all time record. I think we got to win like what it's it's either 12 or 11 in a row, something like that. I mean, we've won 12 in a row before, so Mm. it's possible. Um, Washington State was the next one against the Cougs. Uh, always pretty tough. I mean, this was one uh, that, you know, they're rallying back still from uh, firing their coach not too long ago, their idiot coach. Uh, but it was a win, 38 to 24. Um, yeah, I don't know. Don't really remember this one too much, actually, either. This was the game where, again, you know, like turnovers, you know, like uh, Wazoo forces a bunch of fumbles. Uh, you know, there was yeah, their luck on, the on those fumbles, line. as we said. You know, I, I know, <laughs> I know how this must sound to anybody who's not an Oregon fan or or to, to Oregon fans who wish to be really, you know, pessimistic on the season. But it's like it really is true that you know this team throughout the season like had 
games that were closer than they should have been through a lot of like unfortunate you know circumstances not because they were getting killed on the efficiency numbers if you pull up the efficiency like oregon was a you know a top 20 team like look any advanced statistical system has oregon as a top 20 offense you know in terms of efficiency numbers uh you know where they have problems are number one the defense which as you mentioned like is is chiefly you know because of all the inside linebackers got injured in Tim DeRuder's system, which is like, if you watch them at Cal, you know that like they, they funnel everything to the inside linebackers. Like the, the defense is way worse than the offense in advanced statistics, you know, and, and for that reason, the offense was extremely efficient. And when you shear out sort of garbage time and low probability scenarios and, you know, weird stuff is, you know, I keep mentioning, it's like, yeah, man, like this was a a top 20 offense and that was with a quarterback who had severe accuracy problems uh just looking at the at the scoreboard alone is not you know really an adequate evaluation and uh i mean this deep in the season with only one loss a win against ohio state in the horseshoe really i mean everything's still on the table um I mean, unless you were, I don't know, cocky as hell or not paying attention to what Utah was doing at this point, I feel like most people were, were at least thinking this is going to be a tough challenge going to Salt Lake City, taking on Utah. And uh, it ended up being, well, an absolutely drubbing from the Ute. 7-38, to 38, we lost that one. Uh, we're going to talk about a game pretty similar to this, but worse uh, later. So I guess I mean, that was the crazy thing was that like this, the first Utah game, you could, you know, you know, basically two things were going on. Number one is that like, uh, unlike the rest of the season where Oregon's third, Oregon was number three in the country in their third down conversion rate. This was an extremely good third down team. Their first four drives, they stalled out on third downs. Um, and, you know, and then Utah gets right before the half, they get a special yeah. teams touchdown and they get like this, raw, you know, long uh, tight end touchdown. And like, and, and sort of like it puts the game, it, it makes the game ridiculous. Like, um, and, and a lot of that has to do with um, uh, the the way that Utah plays their linebackers. It's a little too technical to get into in this format, but like the, you know, it was a sort of hats off to Utah's defense thing. Like they changed up the way that they played defense to, you know, compared to the 2019 Pac-12 championship game where their, their linebackers were extremely predictable. And even a coordinator like Marcus Arroyo was able to humiliate them because of that predictability. They suddenly were doing stuff that they had never shown on film before, not just this year, but like ever um, with the way that they were playing their linebackers. And it was like, okay, if you're willing to do all of that to, you know, to get a win, um, you know, hats off to you, man. Um, the thing that was disturbing was that, was the the championship game which we'll talk about in a second i'm sure but like that game i was sort of like yeah okay you know good on you utah like i you know yeah exactly and then uh week after that i mean this is when you're like okay is this gonna be a good season or a bad season because ending with a loss to oregon state feels like a bad season and, and if i am i remembering this correctly where I think it was if Oregon State would have beaten us, Wazoo would have yeah. gone. Was well, that it? With what we knew for the rest of the yes, that's 
we we didn't know that at the time but yes it would it was assuming if they won the apple cup Mm -hmm. which which even in this and there was another game that actually had to go their way too ah okay yeah well uh it didn't thank god um 38 to 29 we beat the beavers and that was and it was like a garbage time you know that game got ugly there was like punches thrown but that was another one where oregon was just like dominating them from the gate and it was 24 to nine going into the fourth. Yeah. You know, and 24 to three at the half. So, yeah. So uh, we beat them. Thank God. You you never want to lose to the Beavers. And then, uh, well, Hey, look, it's Utah again. And this, I mean, this is why fans are especially mad at Cristobal. Uh, You could see the evidence is there that uh, maybe some coordinators, maybe the head coach himself, maybe their mind was uh, somewhere, not a hundred percent on the PAC 12 championship. I mean, I, I can't prove it of course, but what I can do is film study and tell you that like, you know, Utah made the first move in terms of changing up their, you know, what what they played versus what they showed on film. And the reason why everybody going into that game was like, OK, Oregon's going to get them in the championship is that Oregon gets the second move. Right. Mm-hmm. And then Oregon didn't make a second move. They trotted out exactly the same offensive and defensive plans as they had in the previous game. And it's like, well, and the score was basically identical, you know, in fact, actually the defense performed a little bit better um, yeah. in, in that they were forcing turnovers, but like, I mean, that's, but the, like, that's not schematic, you know, that was just, you know, the, the defensive players were sort of, you know, sort of putting the team on their back, you know, by getting those turnovers, but like, you know, that, that it was astonishing to see the coaching staff trot out the exact same game plan that had gotten them hammered two weeks prior. It's there's, there might be another explanation besides the coaches, you know, checked out, but I, you know, I can't really think of it. Sure. Like a possession, like a demon or something. That's possible. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then uh, every duck fans favorite bowl game, the Alamo bowl. Uh, we went against Oklahoma. I, I definitely felt like we were losing this one. Once Bob Stoops uh, stepped up as the interim head coach uh, because Lincoln Riley had left. I was like, the amount of revenge and feel good story in this Oklahoma is going to kick our ass, isn't it? Uh, that being said, I mean, we did rally. We scored 22 points in the third quarter. Uh, that's well, that, not nothing. That, that I mean, that was the bizarre, the, the expected part was given all, you know, all of Oregon's defense was out for this game. Like yes. not just all the inside linebackers who we had Jackson powers, long. Johnson playing. No, yeah. Stack. Yeah, like they they just didn't have a defensive line. Meanwhile, Oklahoma, you know, basically had no like no departures from their offense. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not true. They had one uh, or two, but like, you know, their quarterback, their star running back, their offensive line, you know, most of their wide receivers like it was a very good offense. You know, yes, it was minus Lincoln Riley, but like they knew what they were doing at that point. uh, you know, versus a totally depleted defense like that didn't surprise me at all. Um, the thing that was on, on the other hand, like just sort of like shocking was that like, Oh, Oh, you know, Anthony Brown apparently waited until the third quarter in a losing <laughs> bowl game to start throwing deep passes down the sidelines to Oregon's like young stud wide receiver core. And like, even though that was a loss, um, and at one point, you know, the score was like a laugher that it was sort of like it was gobsmacking. It was like, oh, man, like, where was this all season? You know, well, I, I think, hey, this wide receiver group is coming back. There's a silver <laughs> lining, you know, I think it's possible, too. That may have added to the uh, conspiracy theory. Yeah, of, sure. Uh, uh, Cristobal hampering down when it's at the end, you know, when it's the last day of school. 
And then the teacher's like, yeah, you guys can do that. You know, it kind of felt like that. <laughs> but uh, especially since he was Who knows, around. man. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, you would have expected that. I mean, if that if that theory were totally watertight, then you would have expected that in the first half, too, because, you mm. know, those yeah, guys weren't there, there, you know, so. Yeah. Who knows? Well, um, so there you have it. There's our uh, quote unquote disappointing 10-4 season. But uh, I mean, hey, you got to be pretty young to not remember uh, worse seasons than that for a duck fan. Um, but let's finally get into this roster. Um, well, I guess we're going to start an offense like we like we have every single damn time. Day. I understand there's been a transfer into the program at quarterback, a young man by the name of Bo Nix. He's feeling good. This could be his Heisman, blah, blah, blah season as the as the meme goes. Um, it seems I mean, I know just like last year when I said this about, hey, I think it seems feels safe to say Anthony Brown Jr.'s got this locked down because why would a, a senior transfer or, you know, a, a upperclassman transfer come in? Uh, if it's not, it doesn't feel like he's really going to win it. And uh, you, you got to have that stock answer of, oh, well, we don't know. It's still a, com-. they're saying it's still a competition. I mean, he's got plenty of talent behind him fighting for it, but do you feel safe in saying, yeah, Bo Nix is going to be our starter? Uh, I, I mean, if I had to bet, I would bet, uh, on, on Nix as the starter instead of the other guys, you know, like he, uh, I mean, put it this way, he threw 300 and, 23 passes last year ty thompson mm-hmm. and jay butterfield threw 18 between them you know like, yeah and one of those was a pick from time uh, remember that at least <laughs> so you know uh yeah he's he's you know pretty experienced on top of that like he won sec rookie of the year in 2019 with kevin dillingham as his offensive coordinator mm-hmm. you know he beat like, the mighty oregon ducks in week it, one indeed true you know it, it just sort of like it's week kind zero. of zero. Sorry. It's, I, think it was week I guess I'll put it this way. It's a no brainer, you know, on paper mm-hmm. with no other information, you would all, of course you would bet on um, Bo Nix um, having done, you know, some film study on Kenny Dillingham and that season, you know, I, I think he's a pretty good quarterback. And I think, you know, the Brian Harson um, experience for the last uh, couple <laughs> of years at Auburn, you know, didn't serve him well. Um, I'm, I'm also pretty good, you know, unlike every other position on the football field where I'm sort of skeptical about transfers playing at a different level than they played at their previous school. I think quarterback is sort of the exception. You see it all the time where quarterbacks like transfer in and, uh, you know, uh, and do way better than they did at their previous school. Like that's not a guarantee or anything. It's just, it's a possibility. Whereas other players, it tends not to even be a possibility. Um, you know, I, I think that the, 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 you know, it's speculation. It's in fact, double speculation. The offense that I think Kenny Dillingham will be running is I think a better fit for what Bo Nix's skill set is than, you know, than what he was doing at Auburn in the last two years with Brian Harson. You know, I think there's every reason in the world to believe that, you know, this one at Oregon will be the best season of his career. He has all of the tools to be successful. He was a borderline five-star, you know, out of high school. Um, you know, I, 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 I've got no complaints. I've also got no complaints with the depth because like, if something, if, if either Thompson or Butterfield beats him out, that's like, wow, you know, that's, that's sort of astonishing, you know, uh, would be astonishingly good for those guys, you know, great sign. Yeah. Or if something happens to Nixon, he's unavailable. There's two, four stars to back him up, you know, who have some, you know, in-game experience, you know, it's a better depth situation than a lot of the teams that we've talked to uh, in the PAC 12, where it's like, if the starter goes down, it's like, Oh no. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's not an oh no situation, you know, for Oregon. So, you know, I'm about as pleased as I can be, you know, with this quarterback room. Well, and I'll say this. Um, I, I did actually listen to an interview you did uh, with um, QB11, who everyone should be following if you're a Duck fan uh, on Twitter. He's a very good follow. It's got a good uh, podcast, QB11 show. Uh, y'all actually went through the roster, and uh, I, I believe you brought up a good point where Bonix going against competition that certainly is in in quite a few teams far superior than uh, what he will be going against at the Pac-12. And uh, yeah, that... it's definitely <laughs> he's going up against SEC defenses and Oregon's defense in 2019, you know, whereas he's going to be facing Pac-12 defenses, which are terrible. So like... and not only that, but he's doing it behind a better O-line and with better wide receiver talent right. than he had at Auburn. At yeah, least. that's what I meant. Like he he, you know, he walks, he simply walks into a better situation at Oregon than anything that he was playing under in the last two years at Auburn, you know, better offensive line, better wide receivers, uh, probably an offensive system that is more conducive to his still skill set and is not being run by, you know, sort of an antiquated guy who may or may not be under Gus Malzahn's thumb with like a power struggle going on. Like there's every reason to believe that this is going to be Bonex's best season. And, and he already run SEC rookie of the year. So that's, you know, not a low bar. Yeah, I'd have to say. And then obviously we got uh, Ty Thompson, redshirt freshman, Jay Butterfield, redshirt freshman, uh, both four, four stars. Uh, I, I can't say that I have felt especially inspired when i when i see them supposedly jay butterfield is what more of a, a pass uh, a pocket passer ty thompson a little more mobility um but i i, I don't, i'm not saying i i feel very encouraged but with bo Nix, i i do feel like i've seen you know well, i mean we just have more. we basically have no film on them you know yeah. with live college reps you know in serious play you know it, they all we have to go is that their their talent rating and the inference that they would make if they if they beat out nicks they must have had a just absolutely tremendous fall camp you know that's pretty much all you can say about them at this point point. and now uh i mean the real running back you let's let's be real uh university of oregon um some people have been upset with a you know cj verdell and travis die because our bar is so high you're a fool if you were um but now both of them are gone one of us one of them has betrayed us uh as we all know the other is attempting to get in the nfl there and if you're lazy then you're gonna say uh, one of the biggest uh you know uh question marks here for oregon is running back because they're repaid but we got quite the room here uh this is quite the stable here uh i mean between like sean dollars uh byron cardwell who i personally really liked watching in his in you know his limited time but i mean he wore that number 21 well and that's who i'm always going to be looking at mm. uh and as well as transfers uh marquise uh is it Ir irving irving i couldn't read my own handwriting uh marquise irving from minnesota who is the backup and really stepped in well uh after their uh injury to their star running back uh, Noah Winnington from Western Kentucky University. Very fun to watch, like great catcher, uh, good speed. Yeah, uh, I mean, hey, we can even go down to uh, walk on Aaron Smith, who had that great spring game a couple of seasons ago. There's actually a couple of walk on more walk ons in the room, too, who uh, that's right. Who 
you know, could, could conceivably carry the ball. And a uh, uh, true freshman, Jordan James, who's coming in uh, in the fall, um, who's a four-star. I imagine you feel good about this. I'll, I guess I just want to go straight to who do you think is getting the most reps here, like one or two? or uh, I don't know, man. It's actually, you know, I, I really think this is going to be a pretty pitched uh, fall camp battle. You know, Byron Cardwell was Oregon's number two back last year. He actually, you know, uh, outgained uh, C.J. Verdell. You know, C.J. Verdell, you know, had an injury. Uh, yes. You know, that limited, but you know, uh, but CJ Verdell had 78 carries, uh, uh, Byron Cardwell has 61. You know, he he mm. got more yards in fewer carries than than CJ Verdell did. Um, mm. he averaged 6.8 yards per carry, which is just an excellent, you know, number for running back. He was, you know, on that number, he was Oregon's best running back last year. He's better than Travis Dye was, um, in that regard, you know, and then Sean Dollar, but like, you know. It, if you ask me to handicap this race, it's really hard because like Sean dollars is a real speedster, but he missed last year with an injury. So we don't really have any data on what he can do. Marquise Irving, uh, comes from a power program, you know, Wisconsin or excuse me, Minnesota, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but he's coming from a different type of system. You know, it's a, it's a power run system with, you know, often six offensive linemen. Um, and like, how does that fit in with probably sort of a different, you know, system here? I don't know, but yeah. like that dude was, you know, th- at the very least that dude provides an, an excellent floor i think because you know he carried the ball yeah. 133 times in a power run scheme like that's that's a sturdily built dude right yeah. is know? he is like, he our habibi lakio that'd be pretty cool i don't know it could be uh, you know if you if you need to force him into that box i guess but like he's gonna just, finish with with 10 yards and, and nine touchdowns i'm just saying <laughs> that a dude who carries the ball 133 times yes. in a three yards and a cloud of dust offense is like you know you, you trust that guy's um you know, sturdiness and toughness. Um, And then Noah Whittington comes from Western Kentucky with the running backs coach, Carlos Lachlan, you know, where, you know, Lachlan like totally revitalized that room in 2021. And like the, you know, the, the guy who's sort of key to that revitalization was Whittington, you know, so maybe he's the, you know, the favorite of a running backs coach who made a really strong, you know, impression on that running back room. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man, like each one of those four dudes has something really going for them. Um, and they're sort of, and they're all different things. Um, so like, and I, I don't suppose know. we don't even know. I mean, we, we could be walking something where it's like, either Lanning or Dillingham or even Lachlan is like, no, we, we like to have our one guy in as much as possible. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that question either. You know, like this is really like, this is the, mo- like, uh, it's not that I'm worried about this room. I am absolutely not. I think this is an excellent running back room. And, you know, when I say that they all have different things going for them, I think that's a strength, you know, the diversity. Right. Um, but it's also one where it's like oh, for if you want me to handicap this race, forget it. I don't know. Um, we you will find out. And we also have seven McGee <laughs> throwing his right. name in he's, the race. He's officially it. being converted to a wide receiver, but like I, That's yeah, I, I sort of. But think some, I think sweeps. we can imagine he's going to be taking the ball in some sweeps. Yeah, and, and so you know, like he might be using some gadget stuff or whatever. Like, yeah, no, he's a, that's an electric athlete too. Could be carrying the ball. So like, yeah, no, I don't ask me to handicap this race. I, I, I don't know. I think it will be very good. Um, but I don't know who in particular is going to be the 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 star. So if, if Aaron Smith wins it week one, we have no injuries to the room. Does, does your hair lie on fire? <laughs> um, I think one. given the talent and the proven <laughs> production in this room, um, 
you know, if Aaron Smith won- wins it, then like Aaron Smith is the next Michael James. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, I mean, okay, so here we go. I-, I guess I should just take this clip from all the other years we've done this preview um, and just plop it in here. But uh, I don't know. I- I- to save time, I'll just say it now. Cam McCormick, he could be the starter. He could not play a single game. Patrick yeah. Herbert, he could be the starter. He could not play a single game. That's uh, yeah, both of those guys, like, you know, the last time we seriously saw Cam McCormick was in 2017, but, like, he looked really good in 2017. Um, I really thought, you know, I wrote a whole article about him in 2020 as well. And, like, I'm not joking about that. I, this, like, I, I really think that he has all the potential to be an excellent tight end if he stays healthy. It's just, like, mm-hmm. it's been four years, you know, where he goes, where he has some sort of problem. Um you know who knows and then patrick herbert you know came in in 2019 you know he he was basically a red shirt in 2019 you know uh but like the last two years he's he's been fighting an injury uh you know but that dude's a four star that dude's got a lot of talent um you know we'll have to we'll just have to see you know we we, those two those two guys weren't playing in the spring game the oregon Um, tight ends yeah i mean it'd be nice to act the actual you know from oregon tight ends but like i I, but they're not necessary because like they're returning terrence ferguson and maliki madavow who were true freshmen four stars last year but who got a ton of play like yeah i mean it's just like having any one of those guys would be amazing having two of them just like knocks your socks off like it does feel like with ferguson and madavow and 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 you know i believe there there was still some yes they are freshmen but they were two freshmen out there that were not liabilities yeah uh that were still learning no no they were like <laughs> yeah they were freshmen but like yeah no they were i mean by the end of the season i i was pretty comfortable saying like okay in 2022 th- this is going to be the best tight end room you know in the pack 12 um yeah. like and th- this Absolutely. is you know i can tell you from watching kenny dillingham that like he's much more likely to use tight mm-hmm. ends in the downfield passing game I, I really feel like if you're if you're going to notice one big schematic difference between kelly dillingham's offense and joe moorhead's offense it's going to be with this unit because moorhead was like they were like lateral triple option plays to the tight ends and like Mm -hmm. and and dillingham wants to send them downfield so you know this might be the year where you really see these guys hands in action who do you think has the i mean i know this is tough especially because two of them refreshment has the absolute including out of patrick herbert cam mccormick absolute upside for complete tight end for this next season i think the most upside for complete tight end would probably go to madavow which mm. is interesting because he played a little less than ferguson did um but like i you know but frankly you know both of those guys are very difficult to distinguish um uh um but yeah you know i i really like the way that madavow hits in particular Nice. Well, I know I'm rooting for it, it would be pretty amazing. Can you imagine if Cam McCormick had a full great season like uh, that's really I mean, it would be incredible. Like it'd be the yeah. story of the season. If that guy came, you know, out of, you know, rose from the grave to, to terrorize <laughs> the Pac-12. Yeah, it'd be incredible. I'd love it. Uh, and then let's get into a, a fun group to talk about, um, which hasn't been the case for many a season. But it's finally like, oh, man, uh, I mean, hey, how can you be so angry at Cristobal when we have some really fun toys in the receiving core uh, because of him? Because I like I'll, I'll say, uh, well, I'm, I'll miss Devin Williams. He was very fun to watch. Uh-huh. I, I will miss him. But Dante Thornton 
was a revelation. Troy Franklin was a revelation. Seven McGee was immediately like you saw that talent. And I mean, he was he's trying to live up to hype that is near impossible with people comparing him to, you know, uh, Black Mama, DMV Thomas and such. But like, yeah, it, it, uh, amazing uh, in the still limited time he played as a freshman. Um, Chase Coda certainly seems like a very good, like possession receiver. I mean, he was, he, he was good at UCLA, uh, and like actually in Chip Kelly was good at, uh, kind of like drawing things up that really kind of took advantage of his sure hands. Uh, he's from Medford, Oregon too. I got to shout that out mm-hmm. as someone from the that terrible Mafia. city. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and, he and then out. good for yeah, him. he got out. Thank God. I, way to go. Just like Brady breeze. I mean, he got a. Uh, give credit to them. Josh Delgado, Chris Hudson. These are like slot receivers that are still, you know, have shown a whole lot of upside, have had moments that, you know, they haven't been perfect, but yeah, still. Del- Delgado missed the season, but like, yeah, well, it, it, I think it's useful. Like uh, the, the thing that's really interesting here is that because they've really been recruiting height at, um, Yes. Uh, at, at the outside positions that you actually have a pretty clear delineation between your outside and inside receivers. And, you know, because like, you know, uh, the the dudes that Oregon, you know, is losing, you know, they were losing Johnny Johnson, who at six, six foot, you know, even mm. was playing outside receiver. Right. Um, yes. And, and heart of a champion. A- we should mention that. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and you had, you know, uh, Jalen Red and, and Mike Pittman who are inside guys. And it's like, you know, you had three, you know, basically with the exception of Devin, Will- they, they lost five guys. Let's we'll just recite all of them. Mike Pittman, Devin Williams, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, Lance Will Hoyt. Will Hoyt didn't really play. Devin Williams is six, five outside receiver. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, I thought he was used, um, uh, you know, as a outside wide receiver and used fairly well, although due to some of the limitations in this offense and with the quarterback, like I think he was sort of underutilized, but, Mm -hmm. you know, set him aside, you know, the, the three, you know, you know, the three of the wide receivers, you know, that they lose who really played, you know, and who were fairly productive are all built like inside guys, you know, Pittman and Johnson and red and that, and you don't need that many inside guys like you just don't when you have tight ends and you're running a single back offense um you 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 need half as many inside receivers as you need outside receivers and yes. so this is sort of like the 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 sort of the balance sheet between the outside and the inside is more balanced now so like they return Chris Hudson, who is, you know, a pretty proven commodity and I think plays better on the inside. He's 5'11". They returned Josh Delgado, who missed last year. I think there was an injury or some other situation. But he's also, you know, he was a four-star. He's built like an inside guy. That's, you know, the worst-case scenario, he's a backup. Um, and I think, you know, a good one. Um, and then they have Seven McGee, who's like, as you say, like as soon as he mm-hmm. took the field as a true freshman in 2021, you know, he was electric. You know, like you've got, you know, that's a healthy and more appropriately or more importantly, an appropriate sized inside wide receiver core. 
And then you flip over to the outside guys and the outside guys get to be outside guys, right? Yes. Cause we're talking about height here. We're talking about like six, three, Troy Franklin. Uh, we're talking about six, five, you know, Dante Thornton. We're talking about six, four, Chase Cotto. We're talking about six, five, Caleb Chapman, the transfer from Texas A&M. We're talking right. about, you know, six, three, uh, Isaiah, uh, Crocker from the 2018 class is sort of like the old man of the returners. Um, but he was just getting play towards the end of last year. Um, you know, like everybody in this room is big um and, and gets to be you know playing on the outside and it should be you know a pretty nasty fight um uh you know uh, oh and by the way they also have a couple of very talented true freshmen who are coming in you know justice low who's six two and kyler casper who's six five you know mm -hmm. i think there's enough talent ahead of them that those guys probably redshirt but who knows uh what you know what happens when they show up in the fall um like yeah, you know, every single human being in the wide receiver room is a four star, which like I that I think that's never happened to Oregon before. I I I can't remember any such occasion. Everybody in the tight end room is a four star. Uh, you know, everybody who's gonna be catching passes for Oregon uh is a four star. Um, with like I think one exception who's Noah Whittington was a three star in the running back room and like you know that that's it <laughs> like and mm -hmm. even he's got pretty good hands everybody's noted he's yeah. watched his film it's just like there's a ton of talent here they're clearly like you know separated out into their appropriate roles they're all the appropriate body sizes just like yeah man so even though they're like they're losing quite a bit of production right you know like the four wide receivers who you know combined for about let's see uh, you know over a thousand yards um uh you know, like they come out of it, I think, with a healthier looking wide receiver room, you know, than they than uh, than they went into it. So, yeah, I, I, I like this room yeah. quite a bit. I mean, healthy. And is it I mean, honestly, is this the most talented wide receiving core that we have had in the history of the program? Uh, in the history of Oregon, yes, definitely. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. I thought you were going to ask me, is this the most talented in the conference? And I was going to say yeah. USC's got some pretty talented dudes. Yeah. Um, Although well, when like, you can go around and pick and choose, apparently. Yeah, I know. Oregon's no slouch in this position, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon winds up, you know, outperforming USC, um, you know, simply because they'll have better pass protection. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I need to take a cold shower when you're telling me, oh, the running back room is stacked. The wide receiving core is stacked. Uh, we got to I mean, we're about to talk about a veteran O-line. I mean, we need this, uh, like I, I'm sort of jumping, you know, the, the gun here about the yeah. offensive review, but like you know, we knew that the skill players were, were stacked. We knew that they were returning their entire offensive line and that it was mm -hmm. a well-recruited and developed offensive line who was, you know, kicking ass last year. Like, you know, we know the answer. Like, if anybody thinks I, I spent all this time blowing smoke about Oregon, like all of these are known, you know, we knew this. The The only mm -hmm. thing that's holding Oregon back is we don't know what offense Kenny Dillingham's going to run. We don't know what the answer to the quarterback question is. But like yeah. everything else is just like, yeah, why should you be surprised that the most talented team in the conference is stacked at all the, you know, in a skill player dominated conference is stacked at the skill players, you know, like no duh like of course they are and for that uh pessimist uh that's listening to this ju just you know don't get too angry just just know that this is the fodder you can use for if we you know don't make a bowl game then that's when you start going but look at all this talent so don't worry there it's i mean if oregon doesn't make a bowl game that would be an absolutely 100 percent correct take <laughs> absolutely um or or you know doesn't win 12 <laughs> 12 straight games to start mm. off yeah but and then let's get into i mean this is this has been 
the absolute calling card of our our former head coach and he and he lived to it even though i mean it's just it's been amazing that our offensive line has been a consistent thing that they're veteran. They've stuck around. I mean, obviously that huge season we had a couple seasons ago where we actually made it to that 2020 Rose bowl was really built on the, that veteran O line. And now it's been a couple of years and uh, we still have that same kind of thing. I mean, hell, we even got, when you're looking at like Alex fourth sides, uh, uh, Steven Jones, Ryan walk, Melisala, Amave Lalu, uh, and TJ Bass, I mean, they were all still on that one, uh, putting uh, some good time into it, too. Looking at this, and, and not only that, but I think the more important thing is the um, switching around, the, the great experiment uh, that has been happening at O-Line at Oregon over the years will, I mean, most likely, a very, very high chance that that is not happening. Right. Because that was a very strange thing to be. Yeah, doing. it was totally crazy. It, on the other hand, it was very effective, um, mm -hmm. or at least Oregon's offensive line was very effective, and so that system did not appear to hinder it. Which, yeah. if you had asked me if it would going into the season, I would probably say, well, nobody else does it, so they probably don't do it for a reason. So yeah, it probably would hinder them, but then it didn't. So I don't know. Maybe you know Alex Mirabal ought to be writing a book about offensive line coaching because he did something totally different in terms of like moving guys around like constantly like drive by drive rotations um yeah. yeah man like you know but you're right it is probably coming to an end adrian clem uh did not you know do anything like that at ucla um and can we can we take a, a moment here to address probably what a lot of people would say is the uh biggest red flag in this coaching staff. i mean the haters of oregon are certainly circling adrian clem for his time at ucla um there's you can shit on his nfl time pretty easily if you're like oh well he went up to o-line coach uh for the steelers but then their o-line wasn't the best uh, you know, th these are obviously the knocks against him. Uh, also some, uh, I believe, uh, scandalous things that we don't really need to talk about, but not. Yeah. Great. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll talk about him. He's been accused by former players of, uh, of, you know, some abuses and, and uh, some inappropriate mm -hmm. behavior and practices. Um, you know, I, I wasn't there, you know, I, I don't know what the truth of any of those things are, but like, uh, you know, it should be said he's, you know, he and the school are, are being sued. Uh, yeah, he sounded like a piece of shit in that moment. Certainly, uh, yeah. The thing that's really, you know, I wrote an entire article about Adrian Clem and it was, you know, an absolutely bizarre experience because here's the thing he over the, you know, I, I watched the last two years that he was the coach at UCLA. Um, he was there for five years, you know, basically everybody in the, over the course of those two years, those are his guys, right? Like he recruited and mm -hmm. developed them. Now he did inherit sort of a dumpster fire. And so guys, you know, like, you know, when you can't kind of like, you got to play guys maybe earlier than you were or intending to, and it's can sort of like affect their development. But you know what, by the, you know, by the end there, the, you know, I feel like he's got a good deal of ownership over that line. And like, they just were not, you know, blocking particularly well. Like, and you can see it when you study the film, like the, the, their technique, um, you know, like they, they were just making mistakes on a, um, an unacceptably high number of plays. It's not like all the time. It's like, you know, 20% of the time and a good number is 10% of the time. So it's like, you know, they're making, you know, all, all linemen make mistakes sometimes, you know, the question is just how frequently it is. And, you know, and it's not like they don't know the, the proper technique, you know, it's not like, you know, 
it's not like the offensive lineman that I see at some schools like Washington, for example, where it's like, I, I think you're actively being coached incorrectly, like to, to use poor technique, you know, his guys were being coached to use proper technique. They were just sort of making mistakes more often than they, than, than, you know, what the great offensive line coaches train their guys to do is not play particularly different from anybody else, you know, except for the terrible ones, um, which is what the great offensive line coaches are able to do is get consistent performance out of, you know, they only make a mistake 10% of the time or less. And that's not what I was seeing at UCLA. Um, of course that was five years ago and maybe he's learned some things since then. And then the other thing that's like just absolutely totally bizarre about it is that I watched 12 different guys, you know, over the course of that, cause they, you know, it was two different seasons. They, you know, some guys left, uh, they had some injury issues that they had to rotate through. I watched 12 different guys. Eight of them are still playing in the NFL which a 75% hit rate, not just like, not just, you know, they, they had a cup of coffee with the team. I mean, like are still playing it's five years later, you know, like that's like close to, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they don't last long in the offensive line in the NFL. Like that's like, those guys are lifers, you know, um, like mm -hmm. it, the, the best theory that I have for Adrian Clem is that, is that it's like, it's a, like a donut. There's a donut hole in the middle where he looks at you at high school and he sees your frame and says mm -hmm. like in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, you're going to be an excellent NFL player. And then sure enough, they are when they come out the other side, but in the middle where he has to teach them to perform as a uh, college offensive line players, it's like, mm -hmm. there's too much sloppiness. And according to some of his players, you know, some inappropriate you know, practice behavior. Um, like I, you know, those things can be true simultaneously. It's not like one of those things is true and it disproves the other one. Um, and, and so like, so if that theory is the case, you know, the donut hole theory, well, the good news for Oregon fans for 2022 is that, it, you know, if Adrian Clem has a donut hole in the middle of his development cycle that like, it's the part that doesn't matter for the line that he's inheriting. These guys all know how to play offensive line. They don't need to be taught, you know, how to perform. They, they have been doing it. And, and in fact, the crazy rotation system that Alex Mirabal was doing, you know, taught them, you know, all different positions, you know, it, it had to <laughs> Which like, these guys are unusually flexible and, yeah. and, and, and self uh, driven. Um, so like, I've got, you know, zero, you know, questions about it now going forward, you know, cause probably, you know, going to lose some of these guys in the next year or two. Like, yeah. On the other hand, they're recruiting like mad. He just pulled in a five-star Josh Connerly. Um, mm -hmm. there have been a lot of departures in the offensive line room and sort of to be expected given that Mario Cristobal sort of personally recruited a lot of these guys. Um, but none of them really played last year. Um, you know, mm -hmm. at least, you know, in that regard, like there's sort of no no harm there they were all 2020 or 2021 guys um it, it does mean that adrian clem's got his work to do in terms of recruiting he's going to need to recruit a lot of dudes um and get them you know up to play but you know there are a number of backups who are returning jackson powers johnson you mentioned earlier you know got a lot of experience last year dawson jaramillo was a mm -hmm. four-star in the 2018 class he should be ready to play tackle at this point uh they have uh, uh bram walden and marcus harper i really like harper and and like you said, five star Josh Connerly is a true right. freshman. As a true freshman who like maybe, you know, like if anybody could play as a true freshman and you know Josh Connerly could, you know, Pene Sewell came in as a, as a true freshman and played in 2018. Uh, it started at left tackle, you know, like, um, 
So like, I think the backup situation is perfectly adequate. They probably got uh, uh, four playable guys uh, of whom two got some pretty serious experience. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we got to see them in the spring game and they looked fine. Um, you know, the Oregon split up its teams in the spring game. And so mm-hmm. like they, you know, they didn't have enough to field um five guys on both sides of the line without playing some because they were they were holding out a a couple of guys um, for minor nicks and bruises and so they were playing a couple of walk-ons on the line and oregon's defensive line sort of chewed those guys up and so you might think oh i saw a bunch of sacks in the spring game no no those are the walk-ons we're not going to play don't worry about that you know I, i think you know given all the the talent and experience and the starters and a couple of experienced uh uh backups and the fact that these guys all cross trained like meaning that you know you can move these guys around so that like you know steven jones is built like a tackle he's playing right guard if something happens to one of the tackles you kick out steven jones and you bring in one of the less experienced guys to play not a tackle position where it might be a problem you have him play the right guard position which is like the least demanding of the positions you know what i mean like the all that cross training that alex mirabal did sort of makes them more injury you know proof uh Mm -hmm. and, and so like yeah i don't really see depth problems on this line either Absolutely. Pretty exciting stuff. Um, and speaking of which, we can go over, switch over to the defense. One thing that we're always talking about is if you're going to play that three-man front, you got to have a nose tackle. And it'd be nice if you had more than just one nose tackle would be really helpful for, you know, a full football season. Um, this may be a rare occasion where the Pac-12 has a full-on actual three-man front that they can wheel out there and it's not embarrassing halfway through the season yeah so um yeah returning uh Popovamvai will probably be the starter but they got two guys out of the transfer portal sam taimani from uh washington um who was not playing in a three down front at washington um uh you know he is sort of being converted to a nose tackle but i think he'll be fine like he's certainly big enough um and mm-hmm. i thought he was fairly i mean he had 41 tackles last year as a you know dt in a two down system like that's well, what about the sacks yeah that's right. all the washington fans yeah well washington fans it's bizarre that they don't understand their own defense it's just like i don't you know it seems like they they were watching it for like eight years like i don't get why they're not capable of wrapping their heads around like who's going to produce stats and who's not in that system but anyway um and then they got another they got two different transfers from uh, nebraska who came in with tony tuiati the new defensive line coach one of mm-hmm. whom i think is going to be the third string um or maybe you know maybe he'll show something and, and jump up the the queue but uh, yeah J- jordan riley um interestingly also spells his name with uh, two o's like another former oregon That's- that's right. Tackle. Yeah. So auspicious sign there. Jordan Fat Mac Riley. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're saying? Uh, Fat, Fat Mac too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, no, they, they should run three deep. Um, I would have liked it if Jason Jones stayed, he, he transferred yeah. out, um, that dude, you know, hard to find that, that guy's body type. Um, also was he losing- to Auburn or Miami. I'm trying to remember. Was- uh, I, I believe he was to Auburn. Christian Williams, uh, uh, left the team, but I'm not sure where he wound up. Um, yeah, no, they should actually have a, a, a good nose tackle rotation. Um, 
and, and how one, you know, if they really get into trouble, Sir Mel's the true freshman coming in. That's right. Um, could, could probably, you know, place some nose tackle in a pinch. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think they're going to have a problem putting an actual three man front on the field, which, you know, as you noted, is you know frequently something that makes me pull my hair out is when <laughs> teams, you know, are structured to play a three down front, but then they don't have enough nose tackles and they just go to their two down passing down package all the time and they get That's run right. all over. It's and, like, and Cal is your is usually your go-to example with this which is fun because we have uh tony tuyoti who's was there yeah, uh, yeah. he's like your poster child he was the defensive line coach in 2018 which was the last time that a they had a good defense and b they had a nose tackle which i don't think that's a coincidence um so then, yeah so surrounding him uh surrounding the nose tackle uh still quite a bit of experience and quite a bit of talent i mean yeah. you have been... i like this defensive line better than anybody else in the pac-12 and i and like it's a shame that we have haven't seen them in, in a minute because uh they weren't playing in the bowl game and they, they a number of them were held out in the spring mm -hmm. game but like oh yeah man this is a good defensive line group i'm really excited about it and and holding them out of the spring game is uh i mean one very very one of many so far uh really really good decision by dan lanning i believe just i mean not only because like of be how fully many... healthy yeah oh yeah not only i mean uh because like brandon doorless he had the offseason surgery Popo Amave offseason surgery. Uh, I, I believe there's more here. That's got, but yeah, I think yeah, where Hudson had some sort of thing too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a t it's a ton. And you didn't mention Trevin Maya, who I think has really mm -hmm. looked good and really bulked up. Um, no joke. Um, I also like Keanu Williams. Uh, I think Jake Shipley's been moved inside, which is more appropriate for his body type. Um, mm -hmm. I really like Michael Afiasi. That guy was a, he's a redshirt freshman is a borderline four star. Um, mm -hmm. They brought in the other dude from Nebraska that they brought in Casey Rogers. Like That's I finally right. got a chance to look at his film. He looks really good. Um, he, you know, he looks way better than the mid three star ranking that he had. I, I, I it actually, it made me upwardly revise my opinion of Tuiati, um to, to nice. watch Rogers film um yeah no i i it's it's an embarrassment of riches like i you know they've they they are going to need at least four guys at the non-nose tackle positions and mm -hmm. you know i think they've got one um so I, you and know, i think they've got substantially more than that. i think they might have double that that number um <laughs> uh and uh you've been on the brandon norless fan club for oh many yeah years. yeah no i think that's an nfl player Absolutely. Yeah. And so with that D line, uh, talent experience, quite a fun stuff there. Uh, we know that the actual, well, pro, well, we don't know anything, but uh, it's, it's appears. Well, uh, let's go to the inside linebacker first, actually, because that's probably some of the most fun stuff we get to talk about here. I mean, Noah Sewell is, was uh, yeah. Every once in a while you see someone when they go out in that field as a freshman, we are just like, how is that possible? How is that dude that size? And not only that, able to use that size and that speed that quickly from the get-go. Noah Sewell has absolutely been one of my favorite players. Um, and obviously, people are very excited for Justin Flo as well. Uh, I mean, those are two amazing players that uh, Oregon has not seen that level of talent. Yeah, no, it's two five stars. It's incredible. And we didn't really get to see Justin Flo last year um, or 2020. Um, 
yeah, you know, obviously Sewell's combination of size and speed is uh, incredible, almost superhuman. Um, he, he does have aspects of his game I'd like to see him clean up. I'd like to see him a little better in coverage. I'd like to see him a little more disciplined. But like repeatedly last year, the way that I was showing in my film review articles, the difference, you know, why Oregon's inside linebacker injury situation was killing them is that I would show the same play the way that Noah Sewell would defend it. Mm -hmm. And then the way that, you know, if it went up where if it was a different one of the replacement linebackers, you know, if he had to play the Noah Sewell role in that play, like that he would play different and bad um, that like, yeah, he was the difference, you know, and that if opposing offenses were smart, they would just note where those guys were lining up and run away from Noah Sewell. The silver lining to that cloud is that Oregon's losses at inside linebacker are pretty manageable. It's just Nate Hay Kalani who had a lot of tackles, but he was a walk on and like he was yeah. off in the guy, not that. Um, you know, I wasn't deliberately trying to pick on him or anything, but it was just like, he was often the guy where it's like, look, this dude's, you know, talent, athletic, you know, talent ceiling. The fact that this guy had to be like the number two linebacker, that was the problem. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, you might say like, oh my God, Oregon's like number two linebacker. A was a walk on and B is leaving the team. Like Oregon's in trouble. I like, no, not, you know, not an accurate reflection of what was going on last year. And in like uh, you were very uh, high on the performance specifically because he, you know, switched from uh, being a defensive back to a linebacker. Uh, Jeffrey Bossa really yeah. appeared to open your eyes there. Like, I mean, I, all things considered, that was a very impressive performance as a true freshman convert from the, you know, to, to the position to pick it up on short notice. Like, you know, this wasn't something that happened in the summer. This was something that happened like two games into the season you know um so you know that's very impressive he's uh, apparently they've decided to keep him at uh, inside linebacker um hmm. that probably reflects uh more confidence in the safety core than um than i had at the end of the 2021 season but some some stuff has changed and i think they're much more confident in the safety core now okay. and so therefore okay jeff why don't you stick with the the ilbs um you know assuming that flow is healthy obviously it's sewell and flow who are the starters but um bossa and jackson leduke um yes who i who's also like a very he was a high three star you know came in in the same group as sewell and flow but he was injured last year um he came back at the very end of the year and it was like it was again I was using Leduc in some of my film study articles to be like, okay, this is how a real linebacker plays, you know, for illustrative purposes. Yeah. I think they're going to have, uh, you know, they're assuming that everybody's healthy. They're going to have two, five stars starting. And then I think they're going to have four pretty good looking backups, um, in Bossa, who is pretty experienced, Leduc, who's really good, you know, when he was healthy, Keith Brown, who got a bunch of experience, although he yeah. got injured uh, towards the end of the year. He was a true freshman as well last year and a four star. Um, I thought that he had some stuff to clean up, but he was a true freshman who's thrown into the fire. Like, I think he'll be, you know, a good backup. And they converted a very experienced guy, Adrian Jackson, who's an outside guy, um, mm -hmm. to inside. I think he's going to be used in certain like blitz packages and so forth. I think they're going to have six playable guys among the returners of whom two or five stars and everybody else is you know has gotten a good deal of experience and that's not you know and then we don't even get to the true freshmen the true freshmen look really good Devin Jackson and Harrison mm -hmm. Taggart who are both four stars and who were on campus for spring we got to see him in the spring game and like didn't look like slouches you know didn't look like they were lost out there potentially it is almost certainly a unit that runs eight deep and they only need two um it's 
you know, this, this should be in very good shape. And, you know, going from this was the, the weak position last year, you know, the injuries turned it into a weak position last year and sort of dragged down the rest of the defense and sort of therefore dragged down the rest of the team to a position of strength, like maybe the strongest on the team. Like it's, you know, the, the, the reversal here is just a, a amazing. Yeah, especially in last year, we should mention that that was the position where you're like, uh, you know, to be fair, because you do this to other people where you're like where someone will be like, oh, I mean, we got two. I mean, other Pac-12 teams won't say two five stars, but, you know, we got two low four stars at this position. We're pretty set. And you're like, well, what if they get injured? What's behind them? And they go, oh, well, dude, it, yeah. <laughs> and like Oregon was sort of in that position last year where it was like, yes. yeah, they've got two five stars who are sophomores, but you know, what happens if somebody gets hurt? Oh, well then we're playing, you know, uh, uh, true freshmen and, you know, guys who we have to convert, you know, like that's not, and yeah, but that's not the situation that Oregon is in, you know, the, the sort of like 2022 is the silver lining of 2021, you know, all of that, you know, that, that horror show that happened last year, the silver lining to all of it is Jeffrey Bossa is now a very experienced linebacker. Keith Brown is a pretty experienced linebacker. No Sewell is a pretty experienced linebacker. Jackson LeDuc uh, looks, you know, when we got to see him, looks like the real deal. Uh, uh, you know, Justin Flo, when we got to see him is the real deal. Like, like, you know, yeah, you know, assuming even just normal injury luck, like if they have eight, you know, playable dudes here and two of them get hurt, like that shouldn't be a problem, you know, like it shouldn't be a problem at all. It would still be the best linebacker room in the conference, even if two guys got hurt. Absolutely. And then uh, so around them, which this should be where the pressure, if I'm to understand this correctly, is mm -hmm. a lot coming from uh, is our man Braden Swinson. Uh, redshirt freshman but uh yeah was was very fun to watch uh mm -hmm. he had a torn meniscus against ohio state um still played on it for yeah. a while um yeah it's, it's been it's pretty fun to watch mace funa who has i mean it's seemingly been around slimmed down like he, yeah. he really sort of ballooned up in 2020 um he's he was almost unrecognizable in the spring game he also changed his number and it took me a second to be like who's that skinny guy wearing 18 oh my god it's mace funa like yeah <laughs> and then uh i mean this is what people have been wanting uh he's he's been um pretty fun to watch dj johnson uh, you know, he was I mean, just absolutely destroying people in the spring game. I mean, they were walk-ons, yeah. but like, yeah, he, I mean, he was basically sacking the people attempting to tackle is what it felt like. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the outside line, I mean, like on the one hand, the outside linebacker group is where the biggest like pain comes from in that they are losing Kayvon Thibodeau, who was yes. like, you know, transformational player whenever he took the field, as we discussed when we did the entire season review. Um, on the other hand, like, damn, they're in pretty good shape, you know, at outside linebacker, like, are any one of these people cave on Thibodeau? No, but like, but you know, the, the, the whole of this unit, it's, it's not, you know, they don't have, it's not a like, boy, I hope that Thibodeau is playing because otherwise Oregon doesn't have a pass rush, right? It's Swinson and Funa and Johnson. Oh, and Brandon Buckner, who we saw mm -hmm. against Ohio State and, you know, Terrell Tillman and Jabril McNeil and Jaden Navarrete, who are either four stars or, or high three stars. And then, you know, uh, three you know, or two very good looking, you know, true freshman, Marion Winston and Anthony Jones. Like there's a lot of talent uh, and, and there's a lot of experience and like, you know, it, 
if you got to lose, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau and you're not going to replace him with another five star, this is about the best situation that you can hope for. You know, very experienced guys like Funa and Swinson and Johnson and very promising guys, you know, as backups for a position where they're really only going to be playing one at a time. So like, you know, yeah, they got way more depth than they need. All right, let's talk about the defensive backs. That was my impression of you, by the way. I've heard you say Thank you. that exact thing, that exact way, one million times now. Uh-huh. So, uh, spot on. I mean, um, it's been five years, Adam. <laughs> you really ought to be congratulated for putting up with this. Like, yeah, this well, be number 60, I think, of these preview podcasts. Oh, boy. When you think about it like that. Yeah. And we haven't won a national championship in one of these years yet. Come on. I um, so, years. yeah. Cornerback. Hey, hey, not doing that got Robert Johnson fired. <laughs> Um, so cornerback here, I think, I mean, it appears obvious that this is the position you are circling of should disaster strike. It will probably strike here with the departures of Mikhail, Wright, Uh, DJ James and Jalen Davies, things have gotten pretty rough. That being said, um, if we were to get lucky additions of, uh, Christian Gonzalez, uh, and uh, like uh, Jaleel Florence and Dante Manon sticking around. These are all pretty dang good things for us and pretty serviceable players is what I think. Yeah, I, I think the, the problem here, I think you're right. If the defense has a problem, it's going to be this unit. But I don't think it's because of who they are. I think it's if they get injured because the depth yes. just isn't great here. But like front line or like how you would construct your two deep of like Christian Gonzalez, uh, who's, you know, four-star proven commodity at uh, Colorado comes over with uh, Demetrius Martin, you know, the cornerbacks coach, it's the third time I said that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Dante Manning, who was a five-star and like, you know, I, I, all things considered, especially by the bowl game, you know, I thought was playing very well, uh, you know, as your frontline guys. And then like, you know, you've got Avante Dickerson, who is a four-star uh, true freshman last year and got a little bit of experience as a true freshman. And then Jaleel Tucker and Jaleel Leo Florence, the 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 true freshman four stars who are coming in as your oh yeah and Darren Barkins he was a, a mid uh, uh, three star in the 2021 class you know so we're talking about a pretty young group um, and uh, but like frontline talent uh, pretty good with Manning and Gonzalez um, some experience and some talent with Dickerson and Barkins and uh, Tucker and Florence um, you know it's just like there's question marks uh and if they start taking injuries and you start have to diving into the question marks maybe there's no good answers um it's so in that sense it's the thinnest position on the team on the other mm-hmm. hand if they stay healthy if if they stay healthy and 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 Gonzalez and Manning get to you know play basically every rep and everybody else gets to redshirt or only come in during garbage time like i think this cornerback unit will be just fine and be one of the better cornerback units in in the Pac-12 um you know it's certainly one of the most talented uh it's just they got to stay healthy man like wrap those dudes in bubble wrap cuz cuz yeah if if one of the starters goes down it's like big question mark time that's what it feels like. And I mean, there, there's always that old adage. Uh, if you want to start like, you know, someone who's green further away from the ball is always the best thing to do. So, but it's yeah, true. It's it true. I mean, like Oregon had two, uh, you know, in 2017, uh, Diameter Lenore and, and, and Thomas Graham started as true freshman four stars. Exactly. Um, you know, like, you know, I had my problems with them, but like, you know, it, it's certainly better there than like, 
you know, then, then like the, you know, the, the inside linebacker situation where you were asking true freshmen to step up, like, yeah. I remember people being furious at a freshman, Thomas Graham Jr., who was unable to cover Nikhil Harry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're pretty cruel sometimes. Um, and then uh, let's get to the safeties and the the nickel package here, or whatever you want to call it, the, the star. Um, yeah, uh, this, I mean, as you said, it, it appears actually the further we're getting away from kind of the offseason madness, the crystal ball departure, this group is actually feeling a little more comfortable um certainly more than the cornerbacks Jerome McKinley and uh uh Jordan Happel are out right. um yeah but uh Bennett Williams hey he's still around baby uh I always like Bennett Williams yeah yeah no I I think a lot of people did. he was he made some inter- some fun plays last season I remember well, he got hurt you know yeah and, and you could it. see what happened when he got hurt but like yeah mm-hmm. no he's that's that's a high impact player I, I like Bennett Williams a lot oh and we but, should stay uh actually Damon David back uh, right I there's th- there was three pieces of personnel news that we got um between the end of the season when I was kind of like down on this safety group and right mm-hmm. now where I'm I'm back to thinking like oh okay the safety group should be just fine the, those three pieces are news are Damon David uh came back to the team JJ Greenfield came back to the team in fact he got a That's pick right. in the spring game um yeah. and Jonathan Flo the brother of Justin Flo um, mm-hmm. was converted to a safety you know so so that's depth that dude was a four star in 2021 uh is a true freshman last year so like yeah the, you know it, it's sort of like the position grew substantially you know in terms of depth um and, and the returning guys you know I it looks like you know it looks like Bennett Williams should have a starting spot um it looks like uh Triquiz Bridges who they had to you know, press mm-hmm. into playing a cornerback last year because of some of the problems uh, there. Like, looks like he's going to be playing safety. Jamal Hill, uh, who I've always liked, that dude's real big, hard hitting um, Hill. Yeah, uh, Steve Stevens, who was a four star in the 2018 class, and you know everybody had you know, was pretty excited. He's finally, you know, looks like he's healthy and looks like he got some experience under his belt. So, like, some high expectations for him. Um, you know, we'll have to see how that one goes. Uh, Brian Addison actually got a lot of play, uh, although you didn't see him much. He was the dime when they went to a dime package. He was the high dime uh, guy. So he saw the field a lot. Um, that was a four star too. Um, you know, so like the, there's, uh, you know, everybody in this room, almost everybody in this room is a four star and the guys who aren't are, uh, are high three stars who are relatively experienced. Um, it's a, you know, very, it's a, it's a big enough room. It is a talented and experienced room. Uh, and I couldn't have said that, uh, last year. Oh, and they also got a couple of good true freshmen, Trajan Williams and, and Kamari Terrell, um, who are both four stars. So, you know, if something really goes wrong, you got some, you know, freshmen, maybe you throw on the field. So like, yeah, this went from position that I was like a little worried about, um, you know, and the other thing is sort of, you know, I, I don't mean to dump on the guy, but like the fact was in previous years, Jordan Happel was one of their mm-hmm. best options to play. You know, that guy had obvious physical limitations. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm not exactly saying addition by subtraction for the loss of Jordan Happel. Um, you know, like I, 
I, I enjoyed watching that guy play. He got an interception with a club on his hand, which was amazing. Um, in fact, he got a couple of like, you know, just <laughs> like the totally... Troy die, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a good for Jordan Happel. I am not dumping on Jordan Happel. The, you know, it, it was a room that had to play Jordan Happel last year. It is a room that would not be playing Jordan Happel in 2022. If he if he, he had another year of eligibility to stick around, he wouldn't have playing time on this team. It really seems like safety is the position to punch above your weight. You know what I mean? Because I remember, uh, like, like say Brady Breeze. Like Brady Breeze had the season of his life mm. and left with such like Duck fans love him so much, but still, like, like talent wise, is clearly not like I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He was, he was like a right really... place, right time kind of guy. Which maybe that mm-hmm. is a skill. Like maybe, yeah. you know, nose for the ball is a real thing. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you could see it on film on the plays where he was losing that he was losing those plays, but like he had a lot more plays that he was winning more than you would expect, uh, given his foot speed and some of the other issues that like, yeah, you know, and, and, uh, and so you were sort of like hoping for something similar out of Jordan Happel. And I can tell you from watching his Boise State film, that was the guy who was like, he was reading the offensive backfield pre-snap and would start to move before the ball was snapped. Like, mm-hmm. which on the one hand, impressive, impressive to be smart enough to read and 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 get a jump on the play. On the other hand, get a pick he, six on Herbert. It, it, I do believe. Yeah. Um. I think he picked them off, but he didn't return for six. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, the the you're talking about the, the 2017 uh, Las Vegas so. Bowl. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like that was the thing about Happel's athletic limitations is that like he needed to get that jump. You know, yeah. like if he was doing it from flat footed, he wasn't going to make it to the play. And that was in the Mountain West. Um, so like, again, I'm not trying to dump on Jordan Happel here and I'm not trying to say like good riddance or addition by subtraction or anything. What I am saying is that like, I was worried about the safety room the last couple of years because the safety room was in such a state that Jordan Happel had to play. And that's not the state that they're in in 2022. And uh, since this is our, you know, Homer rivalry or, or sorry, our Homer roster review, let's take a little extra time. Hey, let's talk about these special teams, baby. I mean, I don't got much to say besides hell. Yeah. Tom Snee is back. Um, an excellent punter that I was definitely bummed when he entered the portal. Um, Camden Lewis, who's, who's a bit of enigma, you know, uh, hero of the 2019 Wazoo game. And then Oregon turned around and took Wazoo's kicker. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) And, um, not only that, but, uh, uh, yeah, like he had a great season last season outside of playing against Utah. He was great Mm -hmm. until he played against Utah. Um, Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, this has got to be fun to see. I'm, 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 I'm a little afraid just because you always are when you put someone with this much talent returning punts, but seven McGee returning punts, possibly Chris Hudson returning kicks, possibly that combo is definitely a pretty interesting uh, pair that. You know, has the potential for uh, really returning them because, and that's something we've been missing, honestly. Uh, I, I mean, if you're comparing it to, you know, the days of Chip Kelly, like that kind of special teams excitement in that regard uh, has been gone for a little while. Uh, yeah, having a, um, 
Yeah, there are special teams like sort of hidden yardage. If you d- dive into the advanced stats, like Oregon did not have in 2021, you know, they, they were not enjoying great field position from their kick and punt returns. Um, uh, you know, they, they had to drive the whole field, you know, pretty much every time. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it sort of when you're watching on TV, it sort of doesn't seem like much unless the kid houses it, you know, but like if you start the drive from like, you know, from your 40 instead of from your 25 or, you know, like that makes a difference. That's like, uh, you know, uh, that that's one fewer first down that you have to get, you know, like, uh, you know, they're called, they're called hidden yards for a reason. Um, yeah, you know, it, it would be, uh, you know, it, it would be nice uh, to see an improvement there. Absolutely. Especially if we got someone that they're comparing to the Black Mamba. Like, come on, let's see it. Um, yeah. And so final question here is we're getting into it. Let's look at this 2022 football schedule for the Oregon Ducks. Now, uh, yeah, so we're starting it off, as you all know, against Georgia on September 3rd. And I know it's a whole different coaching staff, but after having beaten Ohio State, in the horseshoe, something that I absolutely did think was not going to happen. I'm now willing to believe we can beat anybody. Um, that being said, obviously, I mean, this is luckily, this is a neutral site game. This is a neutral oh, yeah. site game in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, honestly, this, I have to say, uh, by far the hardest non-conference schedule. Oh, this is ridiculous. Playing the it's- defending national champion, the <laughs> Eastern Washington Eagles, which is like usually, you know, one of the, you know, top five. Coming FCS off of the teams. second round of the FCS playoffs, the Eastern right. Washington University. And, and then BYU, who's been, you know, on a tear and is going to be a power five team in a second. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah, this, this non-con is ridiculous, man. Yeah, which I should say, listeners, this is this is a, a a warning. I have unfortunately been cursed with a September Saturday wedding. Uh, I mean, it is my own mother's, so I can't really be too negative on it. But that being said, it's during that BYU game. I think mm. it may be like smack dab perfectly during it. Uh, so I am gonna be on pins and needles. I I'm like almost confident we're gonna lose that game just because of that. Usually when I miss a big game, like not seeing it live, we lose that game. Like mm. I I could go through the history and really circle so many heartbreaking losses that i didn't see so uh yeah prepare yourself for that one so it sounds uh, like you're blessed yeah i guess so but then it's like i still am gonna rewatch it i'm just gonna be bummed when i'm rewatching it but uh yeah murderous row dear lord like when your fcs opponent is eastern washington a team that like you know like didn't beat us or gave us the best team in washington last year <laughs> yeah man i'd love to see that um yeah like like you know on their own level very very good i mean this felt like when we scheduled north dakota state would thank god we didn't have to play but uh yeah it seems like what the hell are we doing here uh and like you said byu i mean uh i think they are a little bit of a is, is paper tiger the phrase um i, I mean I, think- I i've had to do i've had to watch a bunch of byu film because they played um five pac 12 teams because they year almost won the pac 12 yeah, yeah. They, they were the only uh undefeated pac 12 team last year uh-huh. um <laughs> but uh um yeah it, it was a bunch of games that were sort of like if they were really that team they would have n- not been like 
beaten Wazoo by two points, kind of, you know, like uh, you know, Paper Tigers maybe going a little too far. I think it is a good team, but it's like this isn't like, a, you know, secret killers or anything like that. Uh, you know, I, I think it's like it's a it, it you know, it, it, it's a pretty good team. You know, Oregon will have to prepare for that game. Fortunately, it is not immediately after Georgia. They get the FCS yeah. game in between. Very true. And it's kind of nice that Georgia is week one because it's like, I don't know if you get your like there's so many excuses you can have. It's like it's literally is it's his first game as a head coach. Uh, it's in Georgia. It's against his old team. I mean, I don't know. That, that should be an inter- pretty interesting one, honestly. And then so as far as who we miss, we miss USC unless I'm just going to leave it there unless mm-hmm. they're not on the schedule. I'll say that. And then we miss Arizona State, which uh, still has a lot, as you've been quick to point out to everybody who uh, during these previews has been like, oh, well, ASU's a dumpster fire. They're going to be an easy win. It's like the talent's still there. Yeah, Don't you're so still right weird. in the middle of the pack in terms of like, um, even with all of their departures, even taking that into account, they're still, you know, a decently talented team with a like for real legit defensive line. And like, what's the big problem with most Pac-12 teams is their offensive line. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, so yeah, like I think a lot of, you know, they, they may wind up like firing Herm Edwards and, and the team really like circles the drain. And so it may wind up being the case that you can pencil that win in as an automatic win, but at least as we're looking at it right now, I don't think teams ought to be doing that. And I'm actually like, you know, yeah, that, that, that one's not too bad to miss, you know, like I, mm-hmm. uh, if you gave me a choice between missing ASU and missing Colorado, I would say let let the Ducks miss ASU. I guess I'd put it that way. Yeah. I mean, honestly, really, when I'm thinking about it, Ducks got to be up there for best, uh, you know, conference misses of the season. USC and ASU, uh, it's good to miss that much talent, at least, you know, even though it's like one is literally year one situation. But I don't know. That's pretty good. Um, and then we're starting off conference play at Wazoo. Ugh, I mean, they're, you know, they're rebuilding as well, but still at Wazoo. I, at least it's not going to be freezing cold. You know, it's only going to be point. September. You yeah, know, September like I'd rather do that than in November. Very good point. October 1st, Stanford. Who the hell knows what's going to happen there? That's in Eugene, luckily. Um, I mean, I don't think they're going to be good, but they beat us last year. Uh, October 8th at Arizona. Uh, UCLA comes to Eugene the following week. And actually, no, there's a bye week. And then there, then UCLA comes to Eugene. Uh, California, we play at California. We play at Colorado. I should try to go to that. I, I need to go. That'd be, I have always wanted to visit Boulder. Um, then the week after that, the Huskies finally come down to Eugene to play us again. Hopefully we just keep that streak going. The Utes on November 19th, they've been really into this dramatic late Utah game, and I don't like it. It used to be November's when you wanted to play Utah. Now I'm afraid. Uh, they're coming over to Autzen Stadium November 19th. Then the uh, whatever the rivalry, the Oregon, the platypus, the, the platy. platy. That's it. That's it. The platy is played in Corvallis, November twenty sixth, and then uh, hopefully there's more football for the Ducks after that. But um, Hitler Day, it's come to that time. 
How many wins? I mean, the conference schedule uh, sets up really nicely for Oregon. Um, you know, we talked about how brutal the non-con is, and it is. Um, but the conference schedule, like, you know, let, let's run it down in terms of team talent, right? Uh, Oregon is the number one team and uh, talent in the conference. Uh, number two is USC. Oregon doesn't play them. Uh, number three is Washington, uh, a team coming off of a four and eight season and Oregon gets them in Austin stadium. Uh, number four is Stanford. Who's coming off of a three and nine season. Uh, Oregon's definitely looking for revenge uh, in that game. Cause it was the screwy loss and uh, Oregon gets them in Austin stadium. Uh, uh, the, the, the next team is UCLA. Uh, a team which Oregon gets coming off of a buy in Autzen Stadium. Uh, the next team is Utah. Um, you know, a team which is in the middle of the pack in terms of uh, uh, talent, but sort of you know punches above their weight class. Uh, Oregon's going to be looking definitely for revenge. You know, in that game after the two like embarrassing losses last year, and they get that game in. Say it with me, Autzen oh, Stadium. Yeah, Autzen Stadium. Right. Like they don't. You know the 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 most talented team in the Pac-12 that they play on the road is Oregon State <laughs> in in, in, okay. in in the Platy, you know, the last week of the year, uh, and, and so like, yeah, man, you know, uh, unless you know one of those black magic teams, you know, like you know, you know, they do play Wazoo on the road, you know, Pullman. Oh my hey, God, Arizona, Arizona, on, baby. The road, you know, like oh my God. Um, uh, you know, but at least, you know, the weather should be cooperative, right? Like it's September for Wazoo, it's October for Arizona. So, you know, I, I'd much rather do that than like, you know, September for Arizona, November for Washington state, you know? Um, so, you know, like it's, it's fairly, it is a fairly cooperative schedule. Like you, you really, you know, given that they have to play, you know, for uh, conference road games, you, you couldn't ask for four easier opponents on the road than Wazoo, Arizona, Cal, and Oregon State. Like it, it impossible. It is literally impossible to ask for four easier conference road games, uh, or at least four, uh, 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 the least talented teams, you know, to ask for is road games. Um, you know, whereas the home schedule sets up, you know, pretty nicely for the tough games that Oregon has to play, or at least the teams against, you know, uh, you know, more talented or better teams. Um, so like, you know, if they come out of the, the non-con two and one, and, you know, they, they manage, you know, a friendly schedule and only get, you know, you know, no, nobody goes undefeated in the, in the PAC 12. So, you know, call that one eight and one, you know, 10 and two season in Dan Lanning's first year, you know, proof of concept should help recruiting. Like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, uh, I'll say, you know, eight, eight wins if something goes really wrong. Nine wins is about where you'd peg it. If you wanted to, you know, play the odds, 10 wins, if the team, you know, lines up as you hope they would, you know, that's my prediction yeah no that seems very fair i think every single season we've done this i have always gone with the 10-2 season regardless of what's happening i mean that's the talent that's the talent profile yeah. it has the talent profile of a 10 and 2 team you know it does not yet have like a you know alabama georgia ohio state clemson type of talent profile where you know they're made up entirely of five stars and high four stores where like 11 or 12 wins should be the expectation. Oregon doesn't have that yet. They're on a trajectory to 
get there. They've been making year over year improvements in their average talent rating, but they're not there yet. They're a team that you expect to lose a conference game and they, for some reason, scheduled a super hard non-con. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, 10 and 2. Uh, it's not an irrational prediction. In fact, it's a pretty rational one. Yeah, speaking of rational predictions, um, this is for all the non-Oregon fans that have made it this far into the podcast. This will be the first time that I have the off-season prediction of 12-0, baby. That is right. We're going to Atlanta uh, because my man Dan Lanning knows exactly how to unlock that Georgia defense. That's what I'm convincing myself of. Uh, we're actually going to blow them out in Atlanta, so that's going to be really good for recruiting. Uh, we will barely skate by Eastern Washington. We will actually lose the game to BYU, but through some fluke, you know, Oregon-Oklahoma-esque, we are going to win that one, and mm. a few of them will actually no longer, a few BYU fans will actually give up on their religion because it was such a devastating loss. Wow. Um, and then we're just wiping God the floor. betrayed them. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Wiping the floor with every single Pac-12 team, but barely beating Arizona. Just barely beating Arizona. Uh, we're going to run up the score 120 to 0 against Washington. Utah will not score a point against the Ducks. Um, the Beavers will forfeit. And we're winning it all. This is the natty year, baby. So there you go. There's my, that's not even, I'm not even putting that in my unrealistic, uh, out there. Oh, wait, you that's think because they get to 12 and 0, they just declare themselves national champions. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. No, we're done. No title game, no playoffs, no nothing. That's it. We're 12. Who's going to tell done. us different yeah. if we do that? Just go know? on vacation. Like Utah will be con- like, well, people we'll contact take them it. about the championship game and they just get an automatic out of office reply. Exactly. Yeah. And like, Who's going to stop us? UCF did it. We're better than UCF. And like Utah will be like waiting for us in the Pac-12 championship game. But I'll be like, uh, no, no, we're we're actually celebrating. We all went to Hawaii as a team. We're having a great time celebrating this natty. We just won. and those and this platy we won. Yeah, so it'll be good. Hithla Day, once again, we've gone through every single Pac-12 team in what I am willing to say is the most thorough roster review of the Pac-12 in the internet. it's not, I I don't know who's, you know, send me a link if someone's doing more (laughs) thorough reviews than these. I, I cannot imagine. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, we have all a bunch of really pissed off Pac-12 fans in the Quack 12 DM that prove that we have a far reaching uh, podcast here. And that is very much thanks to you, Hithliday, and all your film review that you're doing. We're, we're so happy to have you on every single year. Obviously, we're going to have you on a bunch more coming here during the actual season. Uh, people should definitely be looking for your work specifically the duck dives, which are the articles that accompany these uh, podcast episodes over on addicted to quack. You can find uh, that on Twitter at addicted to quack. You can find Hithloday on Twitter at Hithloday, H Y T H L O D A Y. The number one, you should be following quack 12 podcast on Twitter. Uh, you should also be following our YouTube account. Cause we're actually doing more and more on there. Uh, we have a Patreon in which my co-host Aaron Schroeder and I do some very silly, very fun, very Oregon Ducks related content there. Like over 100 hours, I do believe, of, of content over there right now. Breaking through duck history, duck, uh, I don't know, a whole bunch of really 
fun stuff there, if I do say so myself. Um, yeah, and please give this podcast five stars in Apple Podcast and leave a review because it helps other people find this podcast. And just if you got someone who is a diehard Duck fan who's maybe even annoying you to the point of they won't shut up about it, send them our way because it, it'll help get that off, you know, out of your ear holes a little bit. Please send your duck fans, your duck fam over this way. Cause I don't know we're, every year we're expanding a little bit more. Uh, we started all the way back in the Willie Taggart era is how long we've been going. So uh, yeah, I don't know. just wanted to thank all the listeners for, for listening to these, all the Pac-12 fans that have, have joined us over these weeks. Uh, Adam, it is, uh, we joked about it a, a second ago, but, uh, you know, it really is incredible, this project uh, that you and I have uh, undertaken. Um, we have not missed a week uh, in five years. We've done every single team. Um, we always have great guests, uh, this this team excluded. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I really do think, you know, you're not going to find a more thorough uh, uh you know, examination of the PAC 12. And I think that is in large part due to your ability to hunt down great guests and, you know, give us the space to, to really, you know, nerd out about them. Um, I, 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 I could not be happier with the way this has gone and, and you get all the credit. Well, um, let's hope this next season is a fun one to talk about. I mean, or at least interesting. I, I want to see some crazy shit go down. I mean, we're going to go to college football, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And that being said, um, this is our audition for the Big Ten. So if we win, we really need to win it all this season. Yeah, this is a this is an AAU quality podcast. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, oh, this is. Oh, and I get to end this podcast in the greatest way that one could possibly end a podcast. And that is by shouting, Sco Ducks. <laughs>